Что такое советская власть? В чем заключается сущность этой новой власти, которой не хотят или не могут понять еще в большинстве стран? What is Soviet power? Soviet power is socialism plus electrification. Two Soviet voices speak across time and space. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and Yuri Gagarin, two very special Soviet voices. The other voices we'll be hearing this evening are not so special, uh, but they are special in a way, or at least they're not altogether typical. When I came back from my first short visit to the Soviet Union a couple of months ago, people said, were you restricted in your contacts? Were you able to speak freely to everybody? And I said, yes, I was restricted. No, I, I wasn't able to speak freely to everybody, and for a very simple reason. I don't speak Russian, or indeed any of the 150 other vernaculars of the Soviet Union. The people I did speak to, and who spoke to me, were then untypical in this. They spoke and understood a foreign language, English, or in one case, Irish. They were educated above the average. Many of them were teachers some actively involved in the promotion of cultural relations with foreign countries, like Margarita Mudrak. I was born in Riga in 1948. I lived there for uh, half a year. Then uh, my family moved to Tallinn. We lived in Tallinn for a couple of years. Then we moved to Leningrad. My father was in the Navy, and... Uh, that's why our family had to travel a lot uh, along the uh, country. Then um, we moved to the south of our country, and after that, when I was uh, 10 years old, we moved to the Far East, where we spent um, about five or six years. Um, after that, when my father retired, we again moved to Leningrad and settled there. I graduated from Leningrad School and entered Leningrad State University. So, uh, you're Latvian by birth. I mean, you were born in Latvia, uh, and then you went and lived in Estonia. Uh, but you were very small then. You don't remember very much of that, I suppose. Not much. No. Uh, but then you went south. Uh, where in the south were you living, Rita? Uh, we lived uh, in the Caucasus. We lived in Sochi. And That's in Georgia, near Sochi isn't it? Also. Um, no, that's not Georgia. Oh. We also lived in Georgia. Sochi but is in what state? Sochi is Russia. Oh, it's in Russia, Russia itself, yes. Sochi, Russia. But we also lived in Georgia. I mm. lived with my relatives there. Oh, you have Georgian have, relatives, yes. Yes, I have Georgian relatives. Well, where, how old were you at that time? Were you at school? Uh, I was at school, yes. I was about seven or eight. And did you go to a Georgian school? No, I did no. not. No. I spent uh, summer holidays there. Ah, and yes, yes. How did you like it down there? I liked it very much, and uh, very often I come to Georgia to spend uh, my vacation time, even now. Then I like um, the Caucasus coast of Georgia also, mm -hmm. and I come there uh, with my friends. I came there with my friends two and three years ago, 
and uh, I get back to Estonia and Latvia. We spent our honeymoon with my husband in um, Estonia also and spent our first vacation together in Estonia also. And um, tell me about the east. When you say the east, you mean the I Pacific mean the coast? East. Yes, Yes, the Pacific coast, Khabarovsk and Vladivostok. Ah. And you can't get much further east than that. Margarita was the first person I met when I came to Leningrad. And she comes as close to the idea of a Soviet woman, or a Soviet man for that matter, as you could meet. Not many Soviet citizens have seen as many parts of their vast country as she has. All the same, uh, I think they're all aware that, as indeed many of us are not aware, that Russia is not the USSR, or the USSR, Russia. But the Russian Republic is, of course, the dominant republic of the Union, and the Russian capital, Moscow, is the capital of the Soviet Union. And what of the several million Soviet citizens who spend their days and nights there? Anglo-Saxon countries coming and saying life in Moscow is dull. You, uh, the Moscovites go to bed about 10, 11 o'clock and there's no uh, such thing as uh, nightlife. Uh, but perhaps it's a different in psychology of the people. The younger generation here, for instance, they're, they're all for, um, you might say, participation. Uh, they want to do things and uh, their notion of doing things isn't only dancing and singing and sitting up in cafes. Uh, they feel, well, that uh, being active in, say, social affairs, uh, even political affairs uh, in the community is something that compensates for uh, what you call a lack of nightlife. Uh, you find that uh, youth activities, I think, they're pretty extensive uh, here in, the, uh, in Moscow. Uh, if we don't have as many uh, dance halls as perhaps you do, uh, we have all sorts of um, what you call amateur art, activities and facilities. Uh, we have at least, oh, I think, about a million young people in Moscow alone taking part in these activities. Well, that would be choirs, uh, dance groups, and if you walk through the streets of Moscow, you probably notice these posters up inviting young people to this or that, what we call them palaces of culture, actually community centers, uh, to join these um, amateur art groups where uh, instruction is qualified and free. And this is the kind of activity, I think, that the younger generation here prefers most of all. Well, here are two of them, not in Moscow, but in Leningrad. Alex is a young university teacher. Olga is at an English school. The English school means that we begin to study language when we're eight, while in regular schools they begin with 12. And you're in the university, Alex. I just graduated the university. And I'm now, I'm now the assistant professor at the Leningrad Construction Institute. I am teaching political science. Ah, and uh, 
the Construction Institute Political Science. Does everybody learn political science in yes, every trade? Sure. And uh, I have my students of the fourth year of this Construction Institute, and I teach them this political science. We mostly try to walk because we like walking along the streets of the city, and we go to the museums and to the theaters, well, and to the cinemas, mostly. How about the opera and the ballet and the concerts? Are these popular with young people? Oh, yes, it's very, very popular. Very popular. For example, today I go to, I'm going to visit the Philharmonic Society mm -hmm. to listen for, for music of Beethoven and Mozart. Is this a special concert for young people? Well, it's not, but many young people from our school and from different other institutions go there. Mm -hmm. I see it's popular to go to the cafes, for example, where uh, youth pop groups are playing. Mm -hmm. For example, just near this house, the House of Friendship, we have one of the most popular cafes in Leningrad called Sonnet, where a group uh, revival, called, it's called Revival, is playing. They're a local group, are they? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good group and uh, Students and young people go, like to go there. Some of uh, young people, uh -huh, some of young people like to go to the hobby groups. Mm -hmm. To the hobby groups oh, yes, of, of the palaces of culture, and they have different hobby groups, starting from some political studies and to aquariumists and lover of uh, decorative fishes and all that. But most people, are most young people interested in pop music? Um, a great number of it, but there is lots of those who love the folk music and the, well, Russian music, you know, the composers of Russian music. Is the pop music, is it, uh, is it Russian pop or is it pop from outside? Uh, both. Uh, they sing Russian and they sing English also. Is it mostly live groups or records? Uh, both, I would say. We call it discoteca. Mm -hmm. And um, pop groups are also playing. For example, at the university, every department, every faculty, as we call them, have its own pop group. And, for example, I was playing in a very bad pop group of the history <laughs> faculty. <laughs> what did you play? <laughs> Drums. Soviet pop is like pop everywhere, I suppose. You either like it or you don't. Uh, but what about that other preoccupation of young people and the not-so-young in all countries? Sport. Again, let's ask our man in Moscow. His name, by the way, is uh, Viktor Kuprianov, and you'll hear his job in a moment. What about sport, Viktor? Again, here you find the accent is on participation. Every, uh, well, I'd say every arena, every gym, and every stadium in the city invites young people to take part. And uh, actually, there's no charge for any kind of sport activities. And uh, in Moscow, I mean, statistics last year show that we had one and a half million 
Muscovites going in for sports of all kinds. Out of a population of... Well, we, we, well a bit less, say, under that. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually would be, if you say we have a million, approximately a million pensioners in Moscow, it's most of the younger generation mm -hmm. goes in for sports. Although, uh, incidentally, at, say, Lenin Stadium and some of the other stadiums, we have activities for the, um, for the past middle age, as we call them. Mm -hmm. Actually, these are pensioners uh, who go in... Uh, for, say, uh, physical fitness activities, jogging and swimming, skiing, and things like that. Now, apart from participation, of course, spectator sports are very popular, too. Uh, yes, spectator sports are popular, and, uh, but still, you see, the accent, again, is on participation. And, uh, well, of course, a big league, uh, say, uh, soccer game would draw mm -hmm. capacity. Ice crowd. hockey. Oh, ice hockey, yes, would draw capacity crowds. Well, say, 100,000 in uh, uh, soccer, 12, 14,000 in uh, hockey. But again, even then, you see that the, uh, the accent would be on participation. Incidentally, I myself am a sports, uh, sportscaster, and here in the Soviet Union, we judge of the a standard or caliber of a sportscaster, not by how he keeps people glued to the radio or television, but how he gets more people interested in going and taking part in these activities. Young people, by the way, like to travel? Well, traveling, yes. I mean, uh, here uh, uh, you find a, a summertime in general, you, you don't find the younger generation in Moscow. <laughs> they just pack up and go and, uh, well, you never know where they're going to until they come back. And in Leningrad, Alga? We, we've got three months summer vacations mm -hmm. every year. So every year I go to different cities of the Soviet Union. For example, I was in Moscow and in um, Volgograd and Kubyshev and in the cities of the Estonian Republic and Latvian and well, Lithuanian Republics. So I've been to many of the cities, but not... Well, of course, I'm dreaming to go to to different other cities of the Soviet Union because I know some of them are really very interesting from the point of view of history and architecture. Universities and other higher institutes organize student travel somewhat further afield. They make up a group of students who want to visit some country. They pay, for example, I paid for a month in Poland 100 rubles. Mm -hmm including um, tickets and stay in the hotels and uh, all there. Mm -hmm. So it's not very expensive. And do most students earn some money during the year? They Most of them work, do some work. I would say that in summer, uh, a considerable part is working, for example, in such a, uh, as it is called, construction teams. Yes. It's voluntary. It's voluntary, but it's very popular because they earn lots of money. Of course, some young men and women become especially dedicated. They have a vocation, almost, to the service of the state, or as they'd say, the Soviet people. In trade union work, for instance, or even in the Communist Party. Stanislaw Alexandrov is in a publishing house, and he is a party member. It means that he belongs to something of an elite. Out of 250 million citizens in the Soviet Union, there are 15 million party members. And out of the, of the population, approximately 100 uh, million are trade union members. Oh, I see. So you have 3%. I know 3 out of 50 
would be um, would be party members. Six percent are party members. Yes. So then, if there are a hundred people working in an enterprise, six of these may be party members, and they may be on all levels of the enterprise. Yes. On different levels, certainly. Yes. But uh, you see, it's. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it depends, uh, uh, well, in one enterprise or more, the, per the percent of party members is maybe completely different from uh, the other enterprise or collective farm or state farm. Well, now, supposing the, if, say, in a certain department, the boss is not a party member, but one of his staff of 20, say, out of he has a staff of 20, and one of those is a party member, does that, can that party member make it difficult for the boss? Yes, you see, there are sometimes cases when uh, there are uh, uh, questions of uh, disagreement between party organization at a certain department or enterprise and, big, and administration. You see, the, for, example, uh, for example, party organization has the right, the right to check on the work of administration at different level in almost at every enterprise well, in, in all the uh, spheres of the economy. And if this, uh, this question can't be solved at the level of the enterprise, so party organizations have the right to apply to the, uh, well, mm, to the higher level of party uh, and uh, administration uh, organization just uh, to, uh, to inquire into the matter, but that is actually rather a very r rare thing, because uh, mm, well, a party organization uh, is so strong that uh, uh, well, if it is uh, a justified uh, demand on the part of the party organization, usually administration uh, fulfills that. But normally, if there is a conflict between the boss, who's non-party, mm -hmm. and the worker, who is party, what happens? If there's a, if there's a conflict between them, oh, who, who the, judges? Yes, there are trade union organization and party organization. Well, boss is a member, he is not a party member, but he is a member of the trade union. I talked to Stanislav about liberty of expression and dissent and censorship. There are Soviet voices which would not answer as he did. Uh, as far as, uh, well, art is concerned, well, there are mm, exhibitions, for example, it will take, uh, well, pictures or sculpture. Uh, there are exhibitions of uh, uh, very controversial pieces. People come and they say, well, it's rubbish, it's nonsense, why it should be there? Well, but uh, it's still there. You see, some people do like, well, there is a freedom of, well, of expression, uh, your, but certainly there is one uh, thing which is forbidden. Any idea, well, such, such thing as a propaganda or war, that uh, something that is uh, dangerous uh, to, the, uh, to the public interest, like pornography, well, in any form, you see, you, uh, it may be well, very well presented and say that, uh, well, this is a kind of art, but it's still, it's still pornography. Well, uh, if the ideas are uh, dangerous for the uh, interests of the society, then certainly they 
these men have no right to express them. <coughs> you see, it's uh, the public opinion that uh, makes these uh, men uh, that, uh, well, that somehow put restrictions on the men. There is no laws or authorities to do, uh, to make these uh, restrictions. It's, it is public opinion. But then how is there a chance of changing public opinion? But, uh, well, the chance of changing public opinion, uh, well, it's uh, for, for one man, it's very, it's uh, how, how a man can change the, uh, the, the whole public opinion. It's, well, uh, public opinion is uh, not uh, uh, formed in a day. True, and even in the Soviet Union, old ideas, old ways, old beliefs take a long time to die. The old familiar rhythm of the rosary from a church in Moscow. Although it should be said that these are not all or mainly Soviet voices. Poles would be in the majority there. But Holy Russia still has her own authentic voice. Church going in the Soviet Union is tolerated, if not encouraged. The religious situation differs considerably from area to area. In Soviet Armenia, we met His Holiness the Catholicus, head of his church in the ancient ecclesiastical capital of Ejimajin. The Armenian Apostolic Church is one of the oldest churches in the world. The first preachers of the Armenian Church were Apostles St. Thaddeus and St. Bartholomew. Thus, the Christianism was advanced in Armenia by the St. Gregory the Illuminator in the year 301. Since then, Christian religion was declared as the state religion throughout Armenia. And this center where we are here now is itself the very cradle and center of Armenian Christianity. Yes. St. Echmeadzin was founded uh, by St. Gregory the Illuminator, and beginning from the 4th century, it became the residence of the Armenian Supreme Patriarch, the Catholicos, and it remains as such to the present day. Well, I have had an opportunity of seeing some of the beauty of the stonework and of the remarkable restoration which was done later in the later years yes. and some of your art treasures and indeed it is very beautiful and very impressive. Uh, are there many other churches uh, in Armenia? Uh, in Soviet Armenia uh, where 
there are 55 churches and monasteries and uh, in the other towns in Soviet Union as well. There are large members of Armenians and Armenian churches in diaspora, such as United States of America, South America, France, uh, Middle East, and uh, elsewhere. Yes, I think there are as many Armenians in the world as there are Irish, and as, as many, perhaps, Armenian churches as there are Irish churches. Uh, Your Holiness, I seem to remember you visited the Vatican some time ago. Yes, yes. I was very glad to visit Rome in 1970 as the guest of His Holiness Pope Paul VI, where we prayed together for the peace of the world and for the unity of all Christians. When I visited Etchemajin, there were pilgrims there, Armenian exiles from many countries. And the Catholicus, who is a man of great charm and warmth, had many visitors. But he found time to send this greeting. On this happy occasion, we sent our blessings and best wishes to the Irish Christian people and pray for the peace and prosperity of Ireland. Amen. And in the Armenian language, Aisirchanik Aritov, yes, Arakumem im Ortnutunere, yev Lavakuin Machtanknere, Irlandazi Christonia Jovertin, yev Aotumem, Irlandiai Hautian, yev Zagumin Hamar. Amen. cultural heritage of Christian Armenia is greatly prized by Armenians today. For a people who have over the centuries and down to our own time suffered persecution, deprivation and massacre, they are very conscious of their place in the world of ideas and ideals. Kevark Kerzopian teaches in the university at Yerevan. In the 5th century, that was uh, we, the founder of the Armenian alphabet, Mesrob Mashtot created a political, uh, cultural policy which uh, uh, ran this way that the, uh, to have uh, a strong um, national culture, uh, the people must first of all l assume, learn the achievements of other people and develop them. So, and uh, secondly, that this culture must be useful to its own people. The culture must be uh, communicated to the people in order that it may be used in the struggle for existence. Otherwise, the culture will lose its social function. 
This was the policy of Mesrub Mashtots, and this was followed up to, to the 20th centuries, and it's a heritage of Soviet scholars today to continue that internationalistic heritage of our fathers. Now this uh, very strong cultural sense, this sense of cultural identity, this persisted during a political, li a political history, which to say the least of it, was not always the happiest. I mean, you, uh, Armenia was politically independent for only quite short periods, I think. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, as uh, the history of people show, political independency is not always the only basis of cultural independency and cultural identity, uh, because, of course, political life sometimes may help but sometimes po political life may as well handicap cultural uh, development. Uh, so there are many nations today who have their political identity, but it should put in such a structural form that it handicaps the cultural development of its own people. And sometimes it may happen so that cultural uh, uh, independency uh, is help, uh, is a result of the uh, of the, uh, let's say, uh, um, absence of political independency because cultural f uh, independency and cultural struggle is used to establish the lost political independency. And that cr gives uh, the possibilities of creating a very strong national and useful culture. As a matter of interest, your periods of political independence were uh, uh, something up to the 8th century, was it, uh, that you had? Uh, we had political independence uh, up to the 5th century first, then we lost it for a f few centuries, then we had it in the 8th, ninth centuries, then renewed it later on uh, in the 11th, 12th, up to the 14th centuries. And this also means that losing and renewing the cultural independence and the political independence uh, is a result of the, of the hope that the people never loses. Uh, I want here to mention one of the good sayings of our uh, historian, Moses Khorenatsi. He says, uh, sol the soldier always have, has two possibilities. Either he may die or he may be a hero. But if people only think of dying, then they never become soldiers. But the, uh, the common sense of the people always is optimistic. And that's why he always tries to forget the, uh, the negative side. And always this, uh, people think that heroism is more possible than dying. And that's why even soldiers die, but they never... Uh, never stop being soldiers. So in the people, which has such a historian, optimistic putting of problems, uh, gives uh, the, 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 uh, the, the meaning of the history these people has lived. Because uh, uh, there, you know, one of our historians has written down that uh, when the Armenian army was isolated in a desert by the Persians in the 5th, 6th centuries, uh, on the, 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 the soldiers started writing on, the, on sand the Armenian alphabet and Armenian words and started learning there because the, uh, the national culture was a spiritual food in this, those very hard days.
Now, the, that spiritual food was maintained in a manuscript tradition continuously down to the time when the first printed books began to appear, yes? Yeah, yeah, that, uh, because the Armenian people believed that the one who keeps a manuscript or orders one surely goes to heaven. Armenian is the first language of Soviet Armenia today and is the means of instruction in all schools and universities. If it wasn't thought, then uh, what is the meaning of calling it Armenia? So I think uh, that's a natural problem. Uh, We don't even uh, feel the necessity of such a question. You see, we all learn. For example, I lecture in Armenian. My old lectures on uh, on uh, Greek civilization, on Roman civilization, and on uh, uh, other uh, subjects, you see. And my students all... Uh, we have all the books in uh, Armenian translated or published by our authors. Uh, you see, you, uh, to be in Armenia and not to speak, write, and smell, and uh, smile in Armenian, it's something very <laughs> odd and curious. The Armenian language had been cultivated for centuries. Not so all the other languages of the Soviet Union. In some cases, alphabets had to be invented after the revolution. The Belorussian Republic lies towards the west of the USSR, east of Poland, north of the Ukraine. The vernacular there was underdeveloped until the revolution, but is the first language of the republic today. Uh, also since the revolution, Belorussian agriculture and industry was developed to a remarkable degree and flourishes today in spite of the enormous setbacks of the Hitler War. The war brought... Uh terrible, horrible damage to the Belarusian Republic. Yes. Uh, and uh, every fourth citizen of the Belarusian Republic perished during the war. Belarusia lost about more than uh, two million people. Yes. And uh, Belarusia lost more than half of its uh, national wealth. Maria Sikorsky speaking in the Belarusian capital, Minsk, razed to the ground during the war. But it is at Khatin one becomes really aware of the full horror of the war. Uh, the memorial here at Khatin is built to commemorate uh, the tragic events of uh, the 22nd of March 1943, when uh, German fascists uh, burnt alive the whole population of in a barn and uh, destroyed the village completely, that is, erased it to the ground. Um, this village was not the only one which suffered. Uh, in Belarusia, during the occupation time, there were 209 towns destroyed and 9,200 villages. Out of this number, 296 villages were destroyed utterly together with all their inhabitants, but were restored uh, recently. And the names of these villages sound like a litany. Deревня Azirki, Deревня Abukhova, Deревня Kakhanovichi, Deревня Kiseli, Deревня Morozy, Deревня Novoye Fomino and many others. But there were 136 other villages which were not restored to life. 
Each of these is commemorated at Katine, with its own plot of ground, like a grave plot, dressed with ashes and enshrining a urn containing the soil of the place. Деревня Мазалевщина, деревня Маркова, деревня Жирносеки, деревня Городища, деревня Гвозды и другие. The towns with their terrible toll of dead are also recalled at Katyn, and the terror of the death camps. But most of all, Katyn itself, where each little house once stood, there is now the symbol, the broken symbol, of a chimney and a hearthstone, with a belfry there now, and these bells peel a continuing toll throughout the days. Katyn Memorial is dominated by the figure of Yosef Kaminsk, the only member of the community who came back to see it all a day or two after it had happened. He had been in another village. He came back to find the body of his son. The great image of Kaminsk, which dominates the scene, shows him carrying his son in his arms with a look of horror and of hatred and perhaps of undying memory in his face. And this is reflected in the air here at Katyn. And there beside it, we have the model of the barn where the tragedy took place. And over against it, a simple monument with an inscription in Belarus. Люди добрые, помните, мы любили житё и родиму нашу и вас, дорогие. Мы сгорели живыми в огне. Наша просьба до всех, хай жалобы и смуток обернутся в мужности силу, как смогли увековечить вы мир и спокойную земли. Uh, good men, remember, we loved our life and our motherland, and you, dear ones. Uh, we burned alive in the fire, and this is our re request to all. Let this sorrow and sadness turn into courage and uh, force, so that you could uh, fix forever uh, the peace and calm on the earth, so that at no time or place will life die in fire. Today, Belarusia lives again in town and country, and in the rebuilt capital, Minsk, now a great industrial city. It seemed impossible to, uh, to bring such a ruined country back to life. But uh, after the war, all the fraternal republics uh, began to help Belarusia, And thanks to their help and the enthusiasm of the Belarusian people, of the working Belarusian people, the republic, uh, the republic's industry, and uh, the whole life uh, was rehabilitated in the republic. And in five years after the war, uh, Belarus's industry surpassed, uh, surpassed uh, was rehabilitated and surpassed the pre-war level of production.
the future is bright. The collaboration of workers from all over the Soviet Union, which rebuilt Minsk and Belorussia, has also spectacularly restored Leningrad to its pre-war classic splendour. But the housing needs of a growing population have been at least as urgent as the renewal of the old city. Now we build um, a new house every day and one flat every ten minutes. But we architects want also to develop the traditions, the ideas of our predecessors so that every part of the new part of the city could get its own face, its typical face. For example, the northern part, where are many trees, the, uh, the uh, city planners tried to uh, reserve all these um, green spaces and to create a part of the city that would be quite modern and convenient to live in. Viktor Vladimirovich brings us back to familiar problems. Housing, rents, incomes. How do you assess incomes? A ruble buys the tourist 60 pence worth, but what's a family income like? Tatiana is a university teacher. Uh, our, univer uh, our income usually consists of two wages, that of a wife and the, uh, the wife and the husband, because, as you know, most of our women work. Uh, a university lecturer... Uh, would get on the average about 200 rubles and well I uh, get about 200 rubles and my husband who is a senior lecturer and has uh, scientific degrees gets twice as much. Mm -hmm. uh, jobs in the theatre, newspapers and so on? Well I know that for example my friend's husband is a theatre producer and his uh, wages are about 400 rubles too. Well now what about industrial workers? Well, industrial workers are also paid uh, something under 200 rubles. The average would be probably 150. Mm -hmm. 200. That would make the family income... No, that would be for one... 300, yes. Yes, that would make yes. 300, 300 if both people work yes. And out of this monthly income, how much goes on rent? We have a three-room flat. Uh, well, and the, um, it, it has 51 square metres... And uh, a square meter, according to our uh, state uh, well, requirements, uh, costs 20 copics per month. 20 copics per month. That's one-fifth one, of a ruble. Yes. So uh, for 50 uh, square meters, I pay 10 rubles a month. a month. 10 rubles a month. That's only about six pounds, a little over six pounds a month. Yes. Ten rubles out of an income which out in your case of, yes, is, is, five, is over six, 600. 600 rubles. So, I of see. course, this is very, very little. Food, too, seems cheap. Clothing, more expensive. One can only give impressions. But in Leningrad, one is always and easily brought from present struggles to those of the living past, the revolution and more recently, the great and terrible siege during the Second World War. From those 900 days, Lev Plesner recalls the suffering of the people and their spirit.
sufferings. Imagine hunger, starvation, cold that began in the winter, shelling, bombardment from the air. That's one side. And very high spirit, moral spirit of the population, of all, of all the population. You see, I spent the whole, the, the whole nine days, 900 days of the siege I spent in this city. I survived. I can't, tell, I can't explain you how did I survive. I survived because I was young. My poor old folks, my parents, they died from hunger. My father died in his sleep in the morning, 19th of March of 1942. And next day, the 20th of March, my mother was dead. They are buried in a communal grave in one of the cemeteries of this city. But to his last day of life, up to his last breath, my father, he didn't he believe, he didn't realize, and he was absolutely sure that the Nazis would not enter the city. And he wasn't a man of uh, some wonderful uh, state of mind. It was not an exclusion. He was an ordinary man, an ordinary Leningrader, and this, and this was char characteristic, excuse my poor English, for all the inhabitants of the city. I can't recollect well, a sole man, a unique figure of in my acquaintances of the surroundings who believed, really, not only believed, who was afraid, who feared that the Nazis, the, what the fascists, the fascists, they will enter the city. The spirit of the population was extremely high. Maybe if my father and my mother, they would leave the city, they would evacuate, maybe they would save their lives. And that wouldn't be a shame if they would leave. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people left the city, not, be, not because they, they feared, not. They were compelled to leave. They had little children, they had to leave. They lived uh, the city because they worked on special enterprises with factories, with plants. My father didn't have to live. He could, he could go away and he could stay. And his choice was, choice was to stay because he believed. He, he, could, he couldn't imagine that he'll die so soon he will not survive. And what I want to stress is the spirit of this man, of this poor man, and his fate was not only his, was not only unique. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people stayed here. Many of them died. <clears throat> you see, I was, uh, I suffered myself very much of that, that they couldn't be buried in uh, separately, you see, as it ought to be, and that they were buried in a communal grave. But now when I come to the cemetery, I see the communal grave and the obelisk and the inscription, eternal glory to Leningraders. 
who gave their life for the honor and independence of our fatherland, now I think maybe it's a great consolation for me. One Leningrader speaking for many. One Soviet voice speaking for all.